Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Juliana Chamides. Professor Chamides, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Today we are speaking about her book, A 20th Century Crusade, The Vatican's Battle to Remake Christian Europe, published by Harvard University Press. Welcome, Professor Chimides. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Professor, what is, uh, in essence, the thesis of your book? My book is making a case for bringing the Vatican back in and putting it at the center of our accounts of the 20th century. I'm looking in particular at how, if we want to understand the rise of anti-communism, and if we want to understand what enabled the rise of fascism, we must look at the Vatican and understand its diplomatic, legal, and cultural activism in the years after World War I. How does your book uh and your view of it in, in, in the book of the Vatican differ from scholars, say, like John Pollard or Owen Chadwick? That's a terrific question. Um, in many senses, I would say that uh, both of those named scholars are incredible scholars who have influenced my work as well. Um, however, I would say that their work tends to Um, look at the Vatican on its own terms as a standalone institution and um, doesn't attempt to show how the Vatican's uh, decisions of uh, various natures, whether it comes to its decision to enter the field of international law and um, use international law to advance its own agenda, or uh, if it comes to cultural matters and the ways in which the Vatican starts using um, traveling exhibitions, novel competitions, radio um, to disseminate its vision. Uh, Essentially, what uh, I try to do in the book is show how the Vatican is itself uh, the child of a moment in time and a moment in which the world is globalizing, is more interconnected than ever before. Vatican diplomats are aware of this major transformation underway, and they very much decide to enter that space and make it their own. And um, and I think this is something new that the book is doing and showing. Uh, in the book, how do you compare and contrast the peace diplomacy of His Holiness Pope Benedict XV with that of the American president of the time, Woodrow Wilson, during the Great War? 
That's a terrific question. And, and that's another space where um, I'm hoping to, to add some, some new questions and some uh, new perspectives to the uh, historical debates around these issues. So um, what I argue in the book is that Pope Benedict XV, in fact, decides to um, take a position during World War I, issue a um, peace proposal of his own, and put in place a what I call a counter-settlement to the peace settlement, which he initially uh, fears would be dominated by uh, liberal powers and particularly by the American president, Woodrow Wilson. And the big concern uh, from the Pope's point of view is that American-style liberalism will put in place a separation of church and state that will diminish the church's power in the public sphere. And so the uh, papacy moves from a defensive to an offensive uh, strategy in order to prevent the possibility of this uh, secular Europe from coming about. Um, Now, this vision of what the American president, Woodrow Wilson, was up to and what he was planning um, was, as I say in the book, more of a specter than a reality. So the, the papacy was responding to um, the perceived actions of Wilson rather than the actual actions. But it is the case, as many scholars have shown, that the American Woodrow Wilson did um, seek to attract attention as a figure representing a solution to um, Europe's wars. And, um, and that solution was, among other things, premised on a uh, democracy promotion uh, vision and, uh, although a little bit belatedly, on the notion of national self-determination. Would it be correct to uh, state that uh, you're very upfront in the book about the Holy See being pro, for lack of a better expression, central powers, pro-German in the Great War? The historical evidence indicates that the Vatican had more connections and ties with the central powers in the Great War and that its worldview was shaped by those connections and ties. I would not argue, and I do not in the book, that the Vatican took proactive steps in order to um, guarantee the kind of superiority of one side over the other in the war. The, um, you know, neutrality was still uh, the official position. So it's more a function of the fact that uh, while the Holy See had diplomatic relations with uh, Austria, which from their from the Holy See's perspective was the last uh, Catholic great power, as well as um, Prussia and Bavaria, um, the only Entente power which the Holy See had actually rather negative diplomatic relations, but at least de jure they had they did have it, which was Russia. The Holy See, as of 1914, did not have diplomatic relations with either France, the UK, Italy, and, of course, when it became an Entente power, de facto, 
the United States in 1917. That's right. Yes. Now, in the book, you make reference to what you refer to as the legal revolution in dip, in Vatican diplomacy. What do you mean by that exactly? So what I mean by that is the Vatican's decision to take an old tool of papal diplomacy, the Concordat, which had been in use for centuries, but turn that old tool to new uses. So whereas um, this bilateral treaty had, um, had a particular valence and function in papal diplomacy, during World War I, a set of papal diplomats decide that, in fact, this treaty can be made valid under international law, and it can um, function in order to first um, defend and promote the rights uh, uh, of the Pope as sovereign, which were very much in question following the unification of Italy, um, and second, to establish relations with states wherein the Vatican is not operating from a position of weakness, which was so often the case earlier, but instead helping really dictate the terms of the peace and um, shape newly constituted um, or newly reconstituted nation states as they emerged after World War One. So um, these uh, treaties became recognized under international law and um, people diplomats were extraordinarily successful in very quickly exporting them first to countries in Eastern Europe and then to um, Central and uh, Southern and Western Europe as well. And so the, it was a concerted project to um, use this treaty diplomacy as a tool for um, the uh, legitimation of the papacy as an international actor and in order to advance um, particular aims when it came to marriage law, education, the recognition of Catholic civil society groups. And um, in all of these respects, the Vatican was surprisingly successful. And part of what I try to show in the book is that the most famous treaties in this um, tradition that we know of from the 20th century, namely the Reich's Concordat of 1933 with Hitler and or with the Third Reich and um, the 1929 Lateran Agreements, both of those are um, emerging directly out of this story and are really best understood in this broader context of uh, the people legal revolution. How did the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk of March 1918 tie in with the Holy See's view of self-determination in Europe? That's a fantastic question, and, and that was really um, something that I was fascinated to discover through my research. So what I uh, learned was that the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk represents a real turning point for the Holy See insofar as um, through its relations with uh, the German Empire, the papacy sees these negotiations through those eyes, and in particular through the eyes of um, one uh, German diplomat with whom it has special connections. And uh, it comes to understand the German position as one of um, backing the uh, idea of 
national self-determination, but using that um, support for national self-determination, in fact, as a way to also build supranational hegemony in the region. So for um, a, an important component of um, the uh, German diplomatic corps negotiating this agreement, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk represents a possibility for um, Germany to obtain uh, influence in a region um, of a cultural and economic nature without formal annexation. So it's, a, it's an alternative imperial strategy that Germany pursues. And, um, and people diplomats are quite taken with this idea that it is possible to exercise um, hegemony without direct territorial control. And, um, and in fact, the turn that the papacy takes towards an embrace of the nation state, which was a political form it had long before, um, was directly influenced by its understanding of Brest-Litovsk and um, the example of Brest-Litovsk. So would it not be the case then that the Holy See's uh, endorsement of self-determination was specific to certain areas up to, say, uh, November 1918, meaning that while the Holy See was quite content uh, to push for self-determination in areas of Europe which were formerly part of the Russian Empire, uh, it was not doing so until uh, the, the end of the Great War in, say, the areas of um, uh, the Habsburg Empire or, for that matter, um, the non-German parts of the, of the German Reich. Correct. I, I would agree entirely with that description, and I would add that um, the Holy See did not come out strongly against European imperialism until very, very late in the game. Um, so in that sense, its endorsement of national self-determination was very much um, first Eurocentric, but even more so, as you note, um, limited to a, a certain number of territories that were um, within the German orbit. Uh, the concordat between the Holy See and Poland, uh, which was, I believe, the first one uh, after the Great War, um, how important was that to uh, the Holy See in terms of uh, its future um, ex future um, um, examples of, of that type of agreement? Sure. So it wasn't actually the first one, but um, it did it did it did uh, represent an important example because Poland was seen as um, one of the most important countries in the region um, with a very strong um, Catholic presence. And its importance, among other things, lies in the fact that um, papal diplomats on the ground were willing and able to um, suggest that this treaty could be used as an instrument for Poland's independent nation-building project, and in particular, for bringing in certain borderland regions that had um, questionable loyalties to um, a thing called Poland, and also um, firming up the uh, 
boundaries of the Polish state through um, the essentially making making diocesan boundaries coincide with the boundaries that um, Polish national leaders were hoping their new state would obtain because quite a bit remained in the gray zone for um, some time following World War II regarding Poland's borders. So in these respects, um, the Polish treaty represented um, an important model. Um, it also was concluded by a figure who ended up being absolutely central in the history of the Holy See, which is to say Akilerasti, who was tapped to go to Poland uh, when he was a librarian and um, not particularly well-versed as a diplomat. But this trip to Poland um, really helped make his career. And in 1922, he would become Pope, uh, Pope Pius XI. And he would express great pride at the um, Polish agreement, um, kind of famously said that he had approved every, every comma that he had read, the text and, and followed the process very, very closely. And once uh, he became Pope, Pope Pius XI um, continued the policy of uh, Concordats and continued to strongly support the Holy See's use of treaty diplomacy as a means to expand its role um, in the European continent in particular. Now, in traditional treatments of uh, the Holy See's reaction to the Treaty of Versailles, uh, it's normally brought out that the Holy See was less than positively inclined, uh, to put it mildly, with this treaty because it was not represented at the peace conference. In your book, you state that, in point of fact, that was obviously one aspect of it, but there were other aspects of the uh, treaty which... Uh, <laughs> excuse me, which the Holy See viewed in a negative light. Can you elaborate on that? The Holy See um, was troubled by various aspects of the peace settlement. Um, in particular, it saw the Treaty of Versailles as a punitive act that would um, bring future war and that um, represented a fundamental moral failing as well insofar as it didn't display um, as it, as uh, its diplomats noted, the characteristics of Christian charity that um, that the PPC was was hoping to see. Now, all of its reaction, of course, was also shaped by um, the fact that it had been quite close um, to Germany during the war and um, kind of experienced the humiliation of the Treaty of Versailles also as a sort of personal affront. Um, people diplomats also traveled to Germany immediately um, and um, and were very much aware of uh, situations on the ground and how the German population and German politicians were reacting to this treaty and um, and expressed repeated concerns that um, that the treaty was playing a destabilizing function. Um, within German political and, and social life. You seem to contend in the book that the Holy See looked upon Woodrow Wilson in a very negative light. But is it not the case that His Holiness Pope Benedict XV urged the then Emperor Karl of Austria in 1918 
to approach Wilson to negotiate a compromise peace, and did not Wilson in fact visit His Holiness in 1919? And、uh, do you have any idea how that actually that visit went and what was said between the two the two of them? Yeah, that's a great question.、Um, I have not seen sources that get into detail on that meeting. That would be wonderful to see.、Um, but what we do know from the sources is that the Holy See、um, was, of course, shut out of the Paris Peace Conference、um, because of a secret clause in the Treaty of London of 1915, wherein、um, Italy had agreed to join the war. Partly on the condition that the Holy See not be present at the peace negotiations at the end of the war, and、um, and what we also know from the sources is that the papacy did not accept being shut out and、uh, repeatedly tried to lobby to gain entry. So、um, my understanding of that encounter was、um, again proof that the papacy saw. Um, Woodrow Wilson is having outsized importance in shaping the post-war order,、um, but at the same time, that this meeting came、um, too late to really have a real impact on、um, on the proceedings in any significant way. So, in essence, the Holy See viewed Wilson through the prism of his being a Protestant liberal, for、correct. lack of a better expression. Yes, yes, I think that's correct. Now, in the book, you seem to claim that the Holy See's relations after the Great War、uh, with Bavaria、uh, were key to Vatican-German relations. But did not the Holy See also enjoy diplomatic relations、uh, de jure with Prussia as well? It wasn't Prussia, in the context of German politics, much more important variable than Bavaria. Yeah, that's a great question about Bavaria, and it's、um, one of the many paradoxes here, in the sense that you're right, Prussia is、uh, clearly much more important politically, but because of、um, the papacy's pre-existing relations with Bavaria, and because of、um, the you know strong Catholic、um, presence in Bavaria. The ties、um, were directly to Bavaria rather than to Prussia, and as I show in the book, this would again have consequences insofar as、um, papal diplomats were reading Bavarian newspapers and in dialogue with Bavarian politicians and、uh, members of the clerical elite, and this was what was helping shape and inform their worldview and their understanding. Um, of German and European political developments, and so in a sense, this、um, view from Bavaria was、um, the the view that the that the Vatican was taking on、um, German affairs as well, even as、um, it was aware of the seat of political influence being、uh, elsewhere. Now, you state in the book that the Vatican nuncio in Munich.、Um, Then Monsignor Pacelli, the future Pope Pius XII, was virulently anti-communist.、Uh, is it not the case、um, that、uh, part of that animus could be explained by an assassination attempt on him in 1919? Absolutely, I think、um, you know there is an autobiographical element to、um, Eugenio Pacelli's anti-communism. That has to do with、um, you know the 
the threat that he experienced to himself and um, to the Nunziature in Bavaria as a whole. Um, and um, additionally, the fact that he um, witnessed revolution and he um, he witnessed revolution, you know, with his own eyes, but at the same time, again, because of the pre-existing um, discursive communities that he was situated within because of the pre-existing context that he had, um, the reading of uh, what was going on was um, an extremely negative read and um, one that pushed him earlier than many other people, diplomats, to see um, communism and the Soviet Union as a major international threat. And um, as I show in the book, it was not the case that um, mainstream opinion back in Rome was with him initially. Um, it took quite some time for the papacy as a whole to um, respond to not just Pacelli's, but the growth of a kind of anti-communist lobby um, within the Vatican. And, um, and essentially, it was only really after the Great Depression that anti-communism became a major force um, shaping people actions. What was the Holy See's initial reaction to the rise of Italian fascism? That's a very good question. So Italian fascism arose uh, in Italy in a climate of uh, near civil war. Um, the country had experienced um, a great deal of economic dislocation after World War One, and um, radical movements on both the right and the left were on the rise. Um, there had been a wave of factory occupations and um, peasant seizures of land in uh, what's known as the two red years after World War One, and the um, Fascists that were uh, initially born as um, kind of paramilitary organizations that were independently um, suppressing left-wing activity in both um, cities and in the countryside were seen um, as, you know, a force of order in uh, some quarters. Um, even as their methods were quite uh, violent and um, and anti-democratic. The um, papacy initially, um, you know, initially it also wasn't at all clear that fascism would become um, the major force that it did and that um, the country would in fact become a fascist dictatorship all of this took time and, and was only really apparent um, after 1925-26 that there was a major um, shift going on and that the fascists were moving to the center. So it really depends on when exactly um, we look to see what the papacy thought of um, this fascist phenomenon. You know, in an early period, it was one movement among many. Um, when the uh, fascists were able to um, essentially threaten a coup with the march on Rome and um, and Mussolini was appointed um, prime minister. In that moment, um, a 
a number of people, diplomats, expressed the hope that this figure would, in fact, um, bring a measure of peace to the peninsula and that um, his influence would help um, eliminate the uh, socialist threat. Um, however, there was also caution around him. He was um, he had a background as a, a known anti-clerical and um, and part of what Mussolini and the fascists who um, kind of formed the regime began to do was really change um, that perception of fascism as an anti-clerical movement and carefully and systematically court the Catholic Church in order to um, win it over. And um, the evidence shows that um, they were partially successful, although, of course, you know, the, the Vatican, like any other institution, is a complex institution that's not monolithic. And so different camps formed within the Vatican regarding um, the extent to which uh, the Pope should engage with the fascists and how and why um, he should do so. Was it also not the case that uh, the Vatican's response to the rise of Italian fascism uh, was uh, directly influenced by the fact that uh, since 1860, the Holy See had not enjoyed um, any relations, uh, certainly not de jure, with liberal Italy. And, uh, of course, it had very negative um, views of the uh, liberal Italian state that had emerged at that time and ran up to 1922. Absolutely. That is a really key point. And one of the key moves that Mussolini makes in this Volkfass as he presents himself suddenly from 1921-22 as a great supporter of the Holy See is that he promises that he will solve the so-called Roman question, which is to say he will, um, he promises to reopen negotiations with the Holy See and he promises to deliver a key demand that popes had made since the unification of Italy, which is to say the restoration of territorial sovereignty. And that is part of what the Lateran agreements that are signed under Mussolini's watch in 1929 do. They um, create a very small city-state, um, uh, Vatican City, but it is a city-state nonetheless that has its own territorial sovereignty. And so in this key respect, the fascists do deliver on the promise that um, that they had made starting from 1921. What was the connection, if any, between the end of the Holy See's negotiations with the Soviet Union in 1929 and the uh, subsequent inauguration of what you refer to as the, quote, the Catholic International, unquote? So there is a direct line there in the sense that, as I show in the book, it was not the case that from 1917, the Vatican took a harsh position against um, the Bolsheviks and against um, international communism. There was a period, in fact, in which people diplomats were hoping to conclude a, another concordat with um, with the new Bolshevik leaders of um, the former Russian Empire, and um, and these conversations opened up um, 
very, very early. So um, the negotiations were uh, spread out over a long period of time. And um, by the mid-late 1920s, it was apparent that the negotiations were not going well at all. Part of it had to do with the fact that um, the negotiations had been put in the hands of a staunchly anti-communist people diplomat who was not interested in negotiations at all, uh, the very same Eugenio Pacelli we were discussing earlier, um, who would, of course, become Pope Pius XII. And, um, but it's also from the Soviet side that there is a, uh, a breakdown and a, a kind of change in the willingness of um, Soviet diplomats to really um, meet the Vatican halfway on its demands. And so these negotiations break down, and that is part of why um, the Vatican turns against the Soviet Union. But it is, it's not a simple action-reaction story. Uh, it's really a multifactorial uh, analysis that helps us understand why it is that the Vatican turns against the Soviet Union and against international communism, starting from the early mid 1930s. Um, the story has to do uh, with shifts internal to the Vatican and the rise to power of what we might call that anti-communist lobby, which was not a foregone conclusion at all that there would be this um, internal institutional shift. We also have um, a story that would be incomplete if uh, we didn't include an analysis of the ways in which the Vatican's discursive community shifts as a result of these concordat partnerships. And it comes to be the case that the key leaders with whom it has concluded agreements and is in regular communication are um, terrified of the Soviet Union themselves, terrified of the rise of um, revolutionary socialism and communism within their own countries and are communicating this fear on a regular basis to papal diplomats. Um, and the story would also be incomplete without um, taking into account the extraordinary effects of the Great Depression on shifting thinking, not just in the Holy See, but in various countries um, across Europe and, and in fact around the world regarding um, the perception that um, basically an old order was passing and a new one um, was uh, on the horizon and what sort of new order would um, be facilitated by the, by the Great Depression um, was very much in question and it was a moment of, of extraordinary fear that the um, that basically extreme ideologies would would be the, the winners of this um, horrific economic crisis. And, um, and, and in various ways that fear was borne out by the facts and, um, and there was, um, there was a boost in, um, in left-wing movements as a result of the great depression, in addition to a boost, um, for right-wing movements. And so, um, the, the Vatican also felt, um, as though it needed to take a position in this uh, situation that it began perceiving more and more as an existential crisis, as a um, moment in which the Vatican's very survival might be challenged if um, left-wing anti-clerical forces did rise to power. 
And so, um, so the, the Vatican's anti-communist crusade also needs to be understood um, within all of these other contexts, rather than simply in terms of the Vatican's reaction to its dealings with the Soviet Union or even um, Soviet domestic policies towards uh, organized religion. In view of the Holy See's anti-communist turn in its diplomacy and uh, other policies, why was the virulently anti-communist uh, draft encyclical Divina Mandatum shelved? You know, I was really curious about that as well, and I wasn't able to find good evidence in the archives to answer that question. Um, I'm hoping that future scholars will pick that up, um, but my guess is that, you know, it was a little bit too early um, and the Vatican was still holding open um, some possibilities for discussion and also holding open um, basically uh, concerned about potential reprisals with if that document came out too early. When the um, people encyclical against communism, um, a new people encyclical against communism did see the light of day, which is to say, in 1937 with Divinita Demtoris, the situation was much different by that point. Um, the Spanish Civil War was already underway. Uh, it had been a year, and um, a coalition of uh, right-wing anti-communist forces um, had already uh, kind of taken sides and, and shown their power in the international sphere. And so the sense that... Um, that the papacy would stand alone and would be uh, particularly victimized by taking a strong anti-communist stance was no longer there. What was the Holy See's initial reaction to the coming of power of Adolf Hitler in January 1933? So again, you know, it's um, it's really, I think, a little bit misleading to try to come up with a single... <laughs> vision of the Holy See, insofar as this is a, a very complex institution composed of individuals who have their own visions and opinions on political goings-on, and um, and I don't want to collapse that complexity. Um, Adolf Hitler, even more so than Mussolini, was seen as a problematic figure in many Catholic quarters. Um, the um, Nazi party was in fact not welcome um, by the German Catholic Church initially, and um, there was a ban on, on Catholics voting for um, National Socialism, uh, which was seen as a um, pagan movement that would potentially um, undermine Catholic influence. Um, and um, and it was also seen as a socialist movement, which, you know, um, was not a um, political uh, vision that the uh, that many papal diplomats were comfortable with. So um, for those reasons, the that the National Socialist Party was not seen in um, in a good light. But opinions started changing. Um, largely as a result of the Nazi party's decision to take a very strong position against communism and to present itself as a force of order um, to curtail some of its more radical um, kind of pagan elements. And um, 
And people diplomats put forward an analysis, which was in fact analogous to an analysis they had put forward of Italian fascism, which was that um, there were two wings within the Nazi party. One wing um, was anti-Catholic, anti-clerical and pagan. And, um, and another wing was open to negotiation with the Catholic Church and, in fact, saw um, Catholicism as a positive force. And, um, and it was with this, um, quote-unquote, more reasonable wing that people diplomats believed they should negotiate. And, in fact, they believed that they should support. At a certain point, they began arguing that they should support um, this wing over the other wing and um, that doing so would... Um, facilitate the growth of the Catholic Church and um, and diminish the strength of uh, radical left wing parties. So there there was a shift um, which was also um, backed by the ruling Pope Pius XI and um, and the uh, papal representatives on the ground in Germany. Um, expressed their sympathies to um, what they identified as uh, the sympathetic wing of the Nazi party. Now, would it be correct to state that, uh, from your perspective, the uh, encyclical of uh, His Holiness Pope, Bene- Pope uh, Pius XI, um, Mit Brendender Sorge, uh, was more of a slap on the wrist than an actual condemnation of national socialist ideology? What I would say is that this is a very important encyclical historically, and certainly it does contain within it a criticism of national socialist ideology. I see it in line with this previous tradition that we were just discussing, which is to say a tradition that sought to identify two camps within national socialism, condemn one of those camps, but suggest that the other camp was absolutely um, salvageable and, um, and a camp with which it was possible for the church to engage. The key message of the encyclical, though, that I think uh, many scholars have missed is that this was an encyclical calling on Germany to return to the terms of the um, Concordat. And so it was um, an encouragement to go back to what the treaty that had been signed in 1933 called for, and um, a strong suggestion that if Germany were to do so and were to um, basically follow the letter of that law, then... um, then terms with the Holy See could be restored. So in the same year, um, the papacy released two encyclicals against communism, which had a very, very different character. So also in order to understand the encyclical on Nazi Germany, I think we need to look at it within the context of the three encyclicals that were released really back to back in 1937. And if we do that, we can see that the language that the Holy See is using in its condemnation of communism is really an entirely different language that leaves no room whatsoever for compromise and that presents international communism as completely beyond the pale, um, not salvageable in any way. 
whereas the um, language that's used with respect to um, Nazi Germany is leaving open um, this window of possibility for a restoration of relations. Can you discuss the origins of what you refer to in the book as, quote, fringe dissident Catholic movement, unquote, in the 1930s and why that movement eventually became important? Sure. So this is a movement um, that is, it's hard to even quite call it a movement in the sense that we have um, individuals from across the European continent who are themselves um, practicing Catholics and also see Catholicism as a um, potential positive force in international relations. And they um, are individuals who, for various uh, complex reasons, grow quite concerned at the rise of either fascism or Nazism, or in some cases, both, and um, start offering what they see as a Catholic critique of these movements. These individuals, um, again, are quite, quite diverse in terms of how they come to these positions. And, um, and again, uh, it's not the case that they all share opposition to both Nazism and fascism. That said, these individuals who um, really start kind of establishing connections with one another in the 1930s, um, and um, particularly um, during the Spanish Civil War, when um, large numbers of them see uh, the collapse of the center and the collapse of a possibility of a Catholic anti-fascism um, and a Catholic anti-Nazism and grow quite concerned with that, um, with that lost possibility. And, um, and these individuals um, find their own communities and continue to write and continue to work, despite the fact that they are um, really berated by um, the clerical establishments in their respective countries, often need to um, flee um, or move the focus of their writing and operations um, overseas. And eventually, um, these figures would have uh, their time in the sun, but it would only be much, much later um, with uh, the Second Vatican Council and with a decision on the part of the Holy See to um, finally really investigate the nature of its activities during the years between World War I and World War II and um, during World War II as well. And in the process, um, come to new positions when it uh, came to um, the papal attitude towards democracy, um, towards religious freedom, towards interreligious dialogue, and um, towards uh, the history of Catholic anti-Semitism. So these um, dissident figures who have 
you know, varying positions of their own when it comes to these issues, when it comes to um, democracy, when it comes to um, anti-Semitism and relations with um, non-Catholic movements and individuals. These these individuals um, do end up being an important force in um, enabling a, a, a really um, important shift that takes place in the 1960s in the Holy See's thinking. Now, in 1939, His Holiness Pope, Pope Pius XI was succeeded uh, as Pope by His Holiness Pope Pius XII. What, if any, changes did the latter bring to Vatican policy and diplomacy? One of my claims in the book, perhaps one of the controversial claims, is that the transition from Pope Pius XI to Pope Pius XII isn't quite as momentous as um, much of the historiography makes out. There is um, a tendency in um, quite a bit of the literature to present um, Pope Pius XI as the um, good anti-fascist pope and to present Pope Pius XII as um, the hardened, um, pragmatic, but ultimately um, more authoritarian pope. And, um, and I really felt on the basis of the research that I did that this distinction is misleading and oversimple, um, and papers over um, the fact that there is quite a bit of continuity um, that's quite significant between these two pontificates. Um, it is true that um, Pope Pius XII um, overturns a, a very belated um, shift that Pope Pius XI seem poised to take against um, fascism. But, um, but in terms of the diplomatic actions that Pope Pius XI put his imprimatur on, um, and in terms of the activities of the Holy Office, which was policing um, internal Catholic opinions and, um, for instance, shutting down some of these dissident debates that we were just discussing. In all of those respects, we do not have evidence that Pius XI was, um, was concerned or that he was strongly objecting to what was going on. And in fact, um, we do have suggestions that he um, approved of these uh, moves. So, um, all of that to me indicates that the kind of hard and fast distinction that many scholars draw between these two figures is a bit overblown. And, um, and similarly, Pope Pius XII um, is not, um, it, it's, it's incorrect to um, kind of paint him in this um, very, very uh, negative, exclusively very negative light in the sense that, you know, if, um, if we take at least one barometer of change to be the papacy's attitudes towards democracy, it is the case that it is under Pope Pius XII's watch that um, the central government of the Roman Catholic Church comes to a tentative and heavily qualified um, embrace of democracy after World War II. And so um, we really need to kind of look at 
particular instances and understand what it is that we're comparing? Are we talking about um, anti-Semitism? Are we talking about attitudes towards the, the deportation and um, execution and genocide of European Jews? Are we, um, are we talking about attitudes towards democracy? Are we talking about attitudes towards imperialism and colonization, et cetera? So before we um, kind of paint caricatured pictures of a good pope and a bad pope, we need to understand even what it is that's uh, being compared about their pontificates, and then we can have a more detailed conversation about um, in what respects um, there's continuity as opposed to change over time when we look at the two pontificates side by side. How did His Holiness Pope Pius XII react to the German invasion and destruction of Catholic Poland? So this is a bit of a shocker, and I think it's also the story that we have yet to really fully understand. Um, it's a story that with the opening of the um, papers of Pope Pius XII in March of 2020, which is basically around the corner, hopefully um, we'll have some young scholars who illuminate that story and, and give us the full picture, because right now um, the materials available to work on uh, the pontificate of Pope Pius XII are also um, limited and, and filtered and edited editions of uh, documents and so forth. So we don't yet have the full story. But what we see um, through the partial archival materials that have been made available um, is a pope who surprisingly doesn't have the kind of um, reaction that the Polish people were expecting. Um, they had the image of a um, Holy See that was very much on their side, and they express um, shock and dismay at the um, official documents that the papacy issues, which um, only allude to the invasion in kind of the most elusive terms and don't directly take a strong um, stance in favor of the Polish people. So I think um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the, that the papers that will be released in March of 2020 um, will um, shed some light on this question as well, because it is a very important question that we have yet to fully get an answer to. Would it be correct to say that the Holy See's reaction to the post-1945 rise of Christian democracy in Europe was an ambivalent one? Correct. Yes. The Holy See's reaction to Christian democracy was ambivalent for several reasons. First, because Christian democracy had its own long history. Um, you know, of course, Christian democratic parties had been formed starting from the late 19th, early 20th century. And that first iteration of Christian democracy overall had um, caused some dismay in papal headquarters insofar as um, that was not yet a moment when the papacy was comfortable with um, with democracy and um, with many of what it perceived as the liberal commitments of uh, Christian Democratic Party members. After World War II, or in the closing years of World War II, as Christian Democratic parties are getting um, reconstituted or, or constituted anew, um, the papacy is ambivalent for a new reason, which has to do with the 
plural and rather amorphous character of Christian democratic parties as they're um, coming back together in the 1940s. These parties are composed of um, warring factions, in fact. Um, the great uh, ideological disputes that were internal to Christian democracy were uh, papered over initially by, you know, a shared opposition to um, Nazi fascism and um, by the kind of urgent tasks of post-war reconstruction. But already by the late 1940s and certainly by the 1950s, it becomes very apparent that this supposedly uniform phenomenon of Christian democracy is composed of individuals who have radically opposed positions when it comes to everything from um, economic redistribution to um, cultural practices to, in fact, what sort of relationship should be established between the Catholic Church and these new democratic countries that um, Christian democratic parties have a major role in. So <clears throat> in a sense, we can say that papal ambivalence vis-a-vis Christian democracy mirrors papal ambivalence vis-a-vis a phenomenon like Nazism insofar as um, the papacy sees these uh, sees Christian democracy as composed of multiple factions and is only comfortable with some of those factions and is in fact working hard behind the scenes to increase the chances that um, those factions it views most sympathetically come out on top in internal power struggles and that it is uh, those factions who are um, helping shape post-war legislation, in particular when it comes to uh, relations with the Catholic Church. Now, in your discussion of the post, um, post-World War II Polish movement Pax, you seem to imply that it was an autonomous organization and don't agree with uh, scholars, pol- scholars of uh, post-war Poland like Norman Davies who um, contend that it was, in essence, a plaything of Polish intelligence. So on that on that particular point, I am kind of leading heavily on new historical scholarship, in particular um, by a younger scholar named Piotr Kozici, who has written brilliantly on um, the history of Polish Catholicism. And... Um, and I, I trusted um, the story that he and other younger scholars were telling about this organization. And um, the, the story is um, that the organization certainly um, played an important role um, polemically in um, the Eastern Bloc, but that it wasn't directly controlled um, and the child of... Um, communist influence in that sense. So that there were um, there were these interesting kind of hybrid figures um, who helped build the organization themselves and, and um, their agency matters and their, their aims matter. And then the sense in which that organization um, could easily um, be uh, cast as, you know, of a piece with, um, with the communist project is in a sense a separate question. 
Um, and, and I think it certainly was the case that it was cast that way, but, um, but we can't lose sight of the, um, fact that individuals, um, who forged this movement, in fact, did have independent aims of their own. And, um, and, and, and so the, the kind of more nuanced picture that emerges is one that I, um, that I felt was correct. And that I, I sought to, you know, lift up in the book, but it's not, an area in which I have conducted a great deal of independent research. So I was, um, I was leaning on this new scholarship as, as clear from the footnotes and everything. In, uh, in your conclusion, you, you seem to take a somewhat post hoc view of post Vatican II Catholicism, where you argue that it was the hardline Vatican policies of the period covered by your book, which eventually caused the falling away of European Catholics post-1965. If, however, that is the case, how do you explain the equal, if not greater, fall in church membership, church activity organizations of liberal Protestant churches in Northern Europe, especially in, in say, the UK? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think um, understanding the decline in church membership and um, the decline in religious marriage in uh, in Europe in the years from the 1960s onwards is a story that is really, you know, beyond the bounds of my book and is uh, simply gestured at. I do not believe that it was exclusively uh, because of the practices of the Catholic Church that um, that membership um, dwindled and dropped. This is um, this is a complex picture that has to do, of course, um, as many scholars have noted, with um, the rise of um, globalization in various forms, with the um, creation of a whole new um, uh, kind of a, a new dimension for um, young people when it comes to identity formation and um, civil society work that emerges in the 1960s and 1970s that opens up um, non-religious um, forms of socialization and um, identity formation in ways that had not been available prior. Um, I think you also have major shifts that um, pertain to gender and family norms that are emerging independently from social movements and capturing mainstream attention and then coming to shape how these new generations uh, think through issues. And when um, traditional religions on the European continent show themselves to be um, not very sympathetic to um, these new um, gender and family norms or um, questions pertaining to um, abortion and sexuality. The um, there is also a a push against that that um, that leads to decline in um, in church membership. It's a complex story, um, and I only really um, allude to it very much in passing in my book. What I would feel comfortable, so I do not feel comfortable standing behind the idea that it is because of the church's um, actions that uh, secularization is on the rise in Europe after uh, the 1960s and 1970s. What I do feel comfortable standing behind is the idea that um, the church's belated reckoning with its own history 
costs it legitimacy. And it um, the, the Second Vatican Council comes a little too late in terms of the objections that are being raised and in terms of the issues that are being debated. Um, and um, not only does it come a little too late, but it also um, doesn't represent the sort of decisive caesura that some scholars present it as representing insofar as um, the local leaderships of national Catholic churches do not all get behind the Second Vatican Council's um, conclusions. And there is a great deal of uh, pushback. And that dynamic, too, um, does, not, um, does not necessarily help the church um, grow its numbers in the European context. Um, so I would certainly say that um, the rise of secularization is part of a broader story that impacts um, organized religions as a whole on the European continent um, from the 1960s. Um, but I would add to that that um, that it is also the case, again, as one factor among many, many, many other factors, that um, the Catholic Church's um, behavior and its lack of uh, reckoning with its own history does cost it um, legitimacy and therefore um, does mean that uh, certain um, Catholics turn away from the church and either continue practicing Catholicism in their own um, kind of way apart from um, organized structures, or in fact, ultimately, um, they turn away from, um, from Catholicism in the long run. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I guess the main thing, the, the one thing that I would like um, readers to take away from this book is the um, recognition that religion and religious forces have played a major role in the 20th century and that um, their activities continue to shape us to this day, whether it's through the um, legal innovations that were introduced and that continue to um, structure lives in so many countries, or whether it's through the discursive and cultural um, attacks on liberalism and communism, which I do think um, continue to um, have an influence um, on our historical present. So, um, so I guess if I were forced to say um, what um, I hope re readers get out of this book, um, in a nutshell, it would be the idea that um, the European continent did not um, abandon religion decades ago. It is a recent, um, that the presence of religion and um, religious forces on the European continent was decisive and um, continues to cast a long shadow on um, politics, economics, and society. With that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. 
thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.